This is the Secret Life of Mold podcast. Thank you for joining us. We have a special guest today, Michael Schrantz. Mike is an indoor environmental professional and founder of Environmental Analytics. Mike brings 22 years of experience and expert knowledge to the subject of chronic illness and how low-dose environmental exposure can be at the root of health concerns. Mike has been involved in over 4,300 related projects expanding across the globe, and he is recommended by treating physicians for his work with patients suffering from chronic inflammatory response syndrome, also known as CIRS, as well as other medical conditions related to harmful indoor environmental contaminants. This is an important topic for us at Mold Inspection Sciences and to our clients. We've been fortunate to work with Mike on CIRS remediation protocols and training, and we know firsthand the benefits of his indoor environmental assessments. Welcome to our show, Mike. Thank you very much, Craig. Mike, we'd love to hear about how you got started in your career and into this area of expertise. Yeah, sure. You know, for me, it wasn't quite the Tiger Woods story, but I started when I was 16 years old working for a family-owned air conditioning company, learning about the basics of airflow and pressure differentials in homes. I mean, this wasn't the typical 16-year-old experience, but it was something that I had an exposure to. And the shorter version of that time period in my life is that uh, as I graduated high school, went through college, I was planning on going into a different career, more business, and seek that sort of educational background. But at the same time, was falling in love with this job and responsibility I had at this, this company, this air conditioning company, where I had moved into the indoor air quality department. And we were going in, out to houses and solving client complaints. People had health issues or complaints, symptoms, and, and we started seeing a trend where we were able to figure out what was going on. And so there was this passion. It was, hey, we're doing a good thing and we're changing people's life in a good way. And that evolved. And through that story, what ended up happening is, is I ended up getting certifications in the field that relate to the work that I do today. And one day around 2006, 2007, I decided that I was going to take the biggest jump in my life and create my own company, Environmental Analytics. Uh, because I loved uh, what I did so much, I felt like this was a calling to me. So that's how I got really started into what I'm doing today. And, and, and really through the story, what has happened is I just met people. It's just been relationships. As you might imagine with any career, you start doing small work, small clients, and then people talk about you. Hopefully you have good experiences. And I started meeting a lot of great people on the way, including a lot of clinicians. And that evolved and started working with more and more complicated cases. And Fast forward to the last, uh, say, five years up until today, what has happened is I've grown and met with hundreds now of clinicians around the globe and have been able to learn a lot about chronic illness. I don't claim to be an expert. I certainly don't try to play doctor, but learned about the complexities that clients and patients alike are facing and looking at the built environment. That's the buildings we live in, the buildings we work in, and trying to figure out what the connection is between exposure in the home, exposure in the office, and, and why people aren't getting better. And so that has pretty much consumed me and is what I'm involved with 99% of the time. Thank you for sharing your backstory. Just listening to you, I have a clear understanding of your passion and commitment to helping consumers when they need it most, in their homes, with their families, or even in their workplaces. When professionals are doing great work, people really respond and businesses grow and continue to have greater reach. Congratulations, Mike. Mike, what specific services do you offer and provide? Yeah, it's broad reaching. That's a great question. My focus as an indoor environmental professional, that's kind of the term we use, IEP for short, it really covers a spectrum. High level, we're looking at assessments in the home where we're doing a, we'll pick on homes, a visual assessment. We're doing an interview where we're, we're listening to the client talk to us about any history in the home or the building. 
And then we're trying to figure out a game plan as it pertains to the contaminants or exposures they're concerned about. So it's certainly well understood that mold and bacteria are common exposure concerns. So a lot of times we will be doing testing that can range in terms of the type and quantity, how sensitive a particular test is. We usually work with our clients to figure what is the best fit. We also get into chemical exposures. I mean, you can think about a new home with new carpeting, for example. Perhaps it's off-gassing some set of chemicals and the uh, occupants are having an exposure. And in more recent months, and, and you could even argue the last year or two, the subject of EMF or electric and magnetic fields have come up. So it feels like the services that we provide today is different than what we'll provide tomorrow. It seems to be expanding. All of these things we're looking at through the lens of chronic illness and basically low-dose environmental exposure concerns. Right, and there are so many situations where it's, it's difficult to really pinpoint what exactly the exposure is. Like you said, there can be VOCs, there can be bacteria, mold, EMF. There's just a wide range of, of potential sources, and that's really our job as environmental consultants and or environmental professionals to go in and try to really kind of determine to the best of our abilities, you know, what potentially is is going on in the structure in regards to uh, water damage and microbial growth and bacteria. It's a very complicated assessment at times and trying to really help our clients pinpoint the area that potentially could be affecting their health. So absolutely, it's, it can be, can be challenging at times. Well, Mike, that's a perfect segue into our main topic today, which is chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Is CIRS an allergy? No, no, definitely not. There's a lot of confusion, which is understandable. I certainly don't want to come across as the top authority. I certainly don't try to play doctor, but there's a big difference between a mold allergy and what we're talking about here, CIRS. Just briefly, with a mold allergy, typically you're talking about something that involves your adaptive immune system, where your body is responding to an exposure. It tries to create antibodies and and you respond to it. When you talk about CIRS, you are talking about the innate immune system. This is the primitive part of our bodies that we're born with. And the whole point behind having CIRS or being with that diagnosis is that you're basically not wired right. You have something wrong in your immune system. There might be an abnormal gene activation or suppression in your body. In plain English, you're not responding the way that a healthy individual would respond in an otherwise type of environment where there is a quote-unquote exposure. And that's the difference. We're dealing with people who don't just have some sort of maybe a seasonal allergy in the fall and the spring. We're talking about people that have had, they were born this way. They had some genetic predisposition that made it to where lower concentrations often of exposures, the type that perhaps some listeners have or don't have, your healthy individual may not ever know. They may never have an adverse response, but take somebody with CIRS. These are the people that are living with a chronic disability. They are the ones that they're in a home, they're in a building, and there's not always an obvious issue going on. It could be mold hidden in a wall. It could be chemicals off-gassing from that new carpeting, but yet a healthy individual who doesn't have CIRS may go on living their life uh, or their work career healthy and otherwise not affected. So it's a totally different ballpark and it's something that a lot of folks have a hard time understanding, which is understandable because it's chronic in nature and it's not immediate. Sometimes the effects aren't so obvious to where, let's say for example, with CIRS, you could have an ongoing issue that let's say you find the exposure in the home but then you remediate that exposure, that doesn't mean the the individual necessarily is going to instantly get better. 
it takes time. So probably one of the most challenging type of clients I've worked with today are people who have chronic illnesses, including CIRS. Right, right. It's very challenging. Is there a certain percentage of the population who has that predisposition to CIRS, meaning some people who are in situations where they may not even know that they have a predisposition to getting the the CRS syndrome? Yeah, I mean, certainly the question has often been asked, what's the percentage of the population that is believed to have CIRS? And we've heard different numbers before. Some of the research that you can dig up if you go on resources like survivingmold.com, things that Dr. Richie Shoemaker and his research have found, is that 24%, 25% of the population has this type of genetic susceptibility. Now, what's the actual number in real life? Well, we don't know. It's, we can't sample the entire population, but right. that's what the research is showing. So basically, one in four people might have this particular type of illness. Interesting. That's a pretty big percentage, really, of the population. <laughs> I'd say so. Mike, how would somebody know if they were in that 24 or 25%? Is there any testing available for that? I think the easiest way to find out, assuming that, see, because that fits a bigger narrative, right? There's a person that's out there and they're having health issues, symptoms. They don't know where to look. One great resource, of course, is going on survivingmold.com and looking up certified practitioners who have been certified under the Shoemaker Protocol to execute this type of diagnosis and treatment. And then they would likely have you follow their treatment plan, which would probably include multiple steps, including collecting blood and certainly other bits of information, cluster of symptoms, that sort of thing. Probably the quickest way to do that, like I mentioned, is survivingmold.com. There's other avenues, there's other resources, but if you want to go to where the research originated, that would be the place. Right. Excellent. They do have an excellent resource for contacting professionals who specialize in in treating individuals with bio illness and and mold illness. I understand there's a vision test that can be taken online, a very inexpensive kind of a pre-screening type of a test. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The VCS test is something that people can choose. It is uh, another metric or type of test you could do to get an indication. See, here's the challenge, right? If somebody has this illness or they don't know what they're trying to find out, a lot of us are faced with budget limitations. And the VCS test, which you can find again at a couple locations, but survivingmold.com does have it, you can, for about $20, take this test from your home, from your computer, and takes a look at the contrast sensitivity in your eyes. And based off of, again, the research that Dr. Shoemaker and others have done, gives an indication of your susceptibility, uh, potential to have CIRS. Interesting. So that's kind of a good way to just start the process. Because I know that we work with a lot of clients in mold inspection sciences. We work with a broad range of clients with concerns specifically to mold and indoor air quality. We oftentimes work with clients who have an undiagnosed illness, or perhaps it's been diagnosed, but the symptoms that they're showing are also similar symptoms to bile illness and CIRS in, in many cases. But they just really don't know if they actually have the syndrome or the CIRS uh, condition. And it does require some testing. A lot of our clients will sometimes start with the vision test, and it's, it's a good starting point, I think. Absolutely. Or if we're dealing in the real world, which we all should be, you may be one of those individuals, if it's not a, a budget issue, maybe it's a spousal issue where you're working with your partner and there's a struggle to try and determine what to focus on and you need a little bit of evidence. So again, nothing's concrete. But for $20 plus or minus uh, to go in and, and take that test to give you an idea, maybe that's what pushes you forward to take the next step, which would ultimately be working with a practitioner who has that certification. Right. Absolutely. Mike, share with us the process that you go through as an indoor environmental professional. How are you contacted by your clientele? How do they find you? And what is kind of the process for your professional consultations? 
for me, certainly it's changed over the years. Primarily a lot of it's word of mouth and a lot of it is through clinicians. So how I initially get contacted is typically because a client or we'll call them a patient is working with a clinician and they're at any level or stage in their diagnosis or their treatment. And to to be honest with you, a lot of my clients are people who've been dealing with the chronic illness for years. They've seen multiple doctors. They've had ups and downs in terms of their road to recovery. But a lot of these people will reach out because, uh, again, a clinician has given them our name and and likely a couple others. And uh, how the process works for us personally is we'll get their information typically in in email form and figure out what they're looking for. Why do they contact us? Are they looking for a second opinion? Are they looking for a boots on the ground site assessment? And then determine how best we can help them if they have any local resources, that, that sort of thing. And then we take it from there. Right. And you offer a pretty unique service that not all indoor environmental professionals offer, which is that second opinion, virtual consultation. Tell us a little bit about that process and how you are able to assist clients even in other states or other parts of of the world in many cases in helping them assess their conditions and maybe give an expert opinion on this special niche of CIRS. Yeah, sure. It's a great service and it's a great question. So what happened was a few years back, there never seems to be enough supply to meet the demand, meaning that you have all these people that are in need. They need help. They have questions. They need their homes checked, that sort of thing. But you're finding that there's not a lot of IEPs that have this education, this background in chronic illness, this critical thinking. And what we found is that we were being bombarded with emails and with phone calls. And if I was able to make a 36-hour day in the world work, we still wouldn't have been able to keep up with a fraction of what we were getting in in terms of people with these needs. And so we started looking at ways to help people who were not local, who didn't have local resources, and tried to find an approach that both was financially affordable for a majority of people, but also was realistic in what we could deliver. And what I mean by that is there's no gray area that we would always prefer boots on the ground for a physical assessment. I mean, to be able to see and touch and hear, be part of that home, nothing beats that. Right. Walking around with a client virtually with a phone or even photos is not as effective. However, our model was different. Our model is different than other IEPs that offer similar virtual consultations in that I really try and focus, Craig, on the fundamentals. So we walk our clients through, okay, tell us about the home. What do we know? You've done testing in the past. Send us that information so that we can look at it. You have some areas of concern. Take a photo of that so that we can talk about it later on. But it's really trying to get them through the fundamentals because I think that's the biggest part that people are missing is it's the connecting of the dots. It's the critical thinking. And many of my virtual consults for the actual assessment, again, and these are people that are in remote locations. They don't have mold inspection sciences nearby. They don't have Michael Schrantz people nearby. We will try and have them do some of the assessment that they can do. But we do try and find other local resources. Take, for example, a client that may live in Montana somewhere and there's not a local IEP who is versed in chronic illness, but maybe there is a mold inspector in that area that with a little bit of instruction from us, we can guide them on some areas to look for. So that's kind of what you're seeing right now is with a virtual consultation. We don't really know where that client is. They've reached out to us needing help. They're lost. They've heard different stories online. You walk away, you have to throw everything out of your house, your house is contaminated, and they're having a tough time either understanding the issue or justifying spending the money, which is very common, especially if you're telling people to throw everything out or spend $10,000 in mold remediation. I mean, the, the examples could go on forever. 
And we've been very successful with virtual consultations. In fact, I'm finding that I'm actually doing, probably for every site visit I do, I'm doing 10 virtual consults. It's very quick. Typically, when we do a consultation, it's an hour to an hour and a half. And the way that we work with our clients is we try and help them as much as possible so they'll be on their own. They don't need us. But there are clients that want to check in with us in a month or you know a few months and say, here's what we've found so far. And we'll walk them through that step and we'll take a look at what they've found and then give them uh, recommendations from there. Right, right. Well, it's a fantastic service. And I know there's many of our clients in the beginning of the process really just are looking for information. A lot of what we do is just educational, discussing consultations, you know, not only at the beginning of our assessments with the client, getting background information, but even post-inspection, we're working with our clients and helping them understand not only the process of what we do, but also the data interpretation. If we do testing, you know, in their home, you know, how do you interpret that data? How do we try to help them determine if they have an indoor mold growth problem or, or water damage and so forth? You know, one of the biggest challenges I think that many people have is to really figure out, like you said, you know, what is the level of concern? Is this potentially affecting our health? As you said, you're not a clinician and neither are we, but we can definitely help insist our our clientele with trying to determine if their home or business has water damage. And that's really in conducive conditions for active mold growth and other contaminants, uh, bacteria, chemicals, like you mentioned. So that's a big part of our process in the assessment and in the testing. So having the ability to have a second opinion from an expert like yourself and, and from mold inspection sciences is really valuable, I think. Well, not to, not to interrupt you, Craig, but I think you hit the nail on the head. That's a big part of what's missing. One of the things I love about mold inspection sciences as well is that there are so many people out there that love to collect the data, but they don't really offer much help in the way of interpretation and guidance, Right. which is not something I see you guys lacking in my personal experience working with you guys in the past. That's such an asset that you guys can provide this idea that half the battle is assessing the home or the building, right? But the other half is interpreting it. And you know, you can't just hand somebody a report that says, here, you know, here's the data and then leave it to the, they, that's why they hired you. A big thing that our industry, well, there's a lot, but one big thing that our industry needs to really hold ourselves accountable to is this idea that you are the professional and people are hiring you to guide them like a captain on a boat through this complex sea of information situations and then provide them with uh, recommendations as reasonable as you can to get them through that, that issue. And again, I don't think a lot of mold inspectors or IEPs or whatever the the term you want to use here, the assessors are doing that, which is another reason why people like myself and mold inspection sciences are in such high demand, because you are taking the time to interpret, to explain the limitations, to provide proactive measures to help people get their home back to a sanctuary. Absolutely. This is the part of our show in which I want to answer a common question from our audience. As Mike and I have been discussing, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, CIRS, is becoming more widely recognized in the medical world as a legitimate cause of illness, which means thankfully more patients are being properly diagnosed with CIRS and effective treatment measures can be implemented upon diagnosis. Given more consumer awareness about CIRS, we're getting calls on a weekly basis specifically to help chronic inflammatory response syndrome patients or for someone who suspects they may have CIRS. These individuals are concerned about conditions in their indoor environments, whether at home or in their workplace, and they'd like to know if we provide building assessments for CIRS. The answer is yes. 
In fact, we follow a strict protocol to ensure the results of our inspections and testing give accurate information regarding the health and condition of the property in question. We specialize in the type of testing CIRS certified physicians are looking for to help treat someone impacted by mold and mycotoxins. They want to know what species of mold is present and at what level to determine whether or not there is an exposure concern. CIRS clinicians need our inspection and testing results to help determine whether or not the property is a safe environment to remain in during their patient's treatment, or if it's a safe environment to return to after treatment. Testing may include qPCR testing, ERMI and HertzMe, as well as traditional microbial sampling such as ambient air sampling, surface sampling, wall cavity sampling, or dust sampling. For more information about our CIRS services, call our customer service representatives at 800-619-MOLD. There are some different levels of mold remediation and mold cleaning depending on the individual. And SERS patients certainly need a higher level of what we call mold remediation. The testing that we do, the assessments that we do help provide that protocol. And we were privileged enough to work with you, Mike. We appreciate your involvement in helping develop a remediation protocol for SERS patients, which we're very proud of. Mike came actually to our facility in Colorado and did some training with employees and provided a great value, a great deal of information that helped us really elevate our knowledge and expertise. Mike, we appreciate all the training and information you provided. Tell us a little bit about that protocol and describe how sometimes the remediation process might need to be at a higher level for a CRS patient as opposed to a standard mold remediation project. It's, it's a great question. Obviously, it can be complicated. I'll try and bullet point as much of this as I can. What you're likely referring to, uh, or at least a big part of it, is the surviving mold community came in the IEPs that are uh, part of uh, this professional panel uh, within, and I am one of those people, came out with this consensus statement in 2016, and we talked about this concept of a lot of shortcomings in remediation and this idea of small particle cleaning to really take it up a notch. And in terms of offering a higher level or efficacy of clean in the environment, and I think that today I'm kind of fast forwarding what I where we were at back in 2016, because it's funny, we're right now, literally, as you and I are speaking, we're in the middle of creating the second version of that document. Hmm. And we actually are modeling a lot of, and, and I should say complementing, a lot of the recommendations that are already mentioned in the IICRC S520, which is a well-known mold remediation standard. The current one is the third edition. Right. And what we are doing, so to kind of answer your question in a roundabout way, is we're trying to honor and complement what the S520 we feel does adequately and where we feel like a person should deviate or go above and beyond what the S520 already does such a great job doing. It's our intention is to mention those things. And where we're mainly seeing these issues and concerns are in the quantity of cleaning, like the S520 doesn't necessarily specify how many rounds to clean, how many times do you wipe that surface. So we try and specify that. The S520 talks about broad strokes of chemicals to use, but we try to be a little bit more careful because when we're dealing with somebody with CIRS, they may be chemically sensitive right. and getting around these challenges, right? Then there's other issues like just a little bit more awareness on things of engineering controls. When we talk about engineering controls in a containment, say there's a mold remediation project, 
you commonly hear the term say, hey, we want to use negative air. We want to depressurize this containment to contain the work and all that. Well, there might be situations where negative air is actually a horrible idea. What if you have a really moldy crawl space underneath the kitchen containment area and you're sucking in contaminants from uh, another area that is entering your containment area? And that's just one easy example. There's all kinds of situations where you would want to be careful. And, and that's that critical thinking I mentioned earlier. So the focus with people with CIRS is that we're just trying to reinforce what the industry already mentions, already recommends, widely accepted. And then we're trying to polish up the details that we think need refining. You wipe this surface off until you don't see soil on the cloth anymore. And it's challenging because the recommendations that we make, they're not a guarantee. When the jobs are done, quote unquote, right, we're not the weakest link. Usually the patient is, right? Their health. Right. How many fungal fractures or fungal structures are okay for that individual? Uh, 14 per cubic meter? 15? 1,000? It's trying to work with what we know. And this is why our industry, and I know that you guys know this firsthand, is so complicated because we don't have magic numbers to work to. We have guidelines. And we take the guidelines that are industry accepted for the most part, and we enhance them. When we try to do so, I'll, I'll, I'll as a final note, in a pragmatic way, we're not telling people to do things that arguably are going to cost thousands of dollars. I'll give you one example. I'm not a big fan of telling people to throw away their contents, not to get into that topic, but just to say a lot of times it's about walking through the client and figuring out why we're concerned about a particular area or a particular item and how can we handle that item without having them have to file bankruptcy right. or pull out a second mortgage. These are real life things. This is real talk. I love the surviving mold organization because um, they don't claim to be perfect, but we're all learning as we go. And the professionals that I'm working with in that particular organization, I'm involved with many uh, organizations. That's one big one. They're open-minded, and these are the top people in the industry. And we're all doing it to try to find a product and an approach that people can follow. Free information, if you, by the way, that they can use to apply to their home and situation to maximize success. Right. That's excellent. And it is an evolving topic for learning. There is no exact science, uh, so to speak, at times. And it's, it really is specific to the conditions of the property and the health of the individual. So it, it can be complicated, but it's great work that you're doing, Mike. Mike, you've touched on so many important aspects of the remediation process and the protocols. We just simply don't have enough time to, to cover everything. Where can consumers find more information about this? I agree. I'd love to talk to you for hours about some of the examples. Best place to go would be on survivingmold.com. If you were to go on there, you'd find the indoor environmental professional consensus statement. Now, this is a consensus statement that was written in 2016. As I mentioned, uh, we're working on a second edition, which hopefully we'll see. We're going to get out by the end of the year, 2019. However, for those listening, probably the easiest, quickest way to find it is literally just go to like your search bar, like Google or whatever you use and type in literally IEP consensus statement. And if you want to kind of throw a little bit extra in there and put surviving mold in there, you'll find it. It'll be one of the first or second search. Read that document. There's a lot of pearls in that document that you can learn more about. Excellent. That's going to be a great resource for a lot of people. Thank you, Mike. So Mike, on a professional level, uh, the IEPs that are listening to this podcast, what can they do to further their education and develop more skill sets for analyzing homes, uh, working with CIRS patients. Many of us, this is kind of a new frontier, so to speak, and it's evolving and it's complicated. Are there any resources available for IEPs to really further their education? Yeah, great question and challenging, right? Let's start with the easier stuff. 
we know that there are different certification bodies out there that offer great foundation type educations, whether it's organizations like ACAC.org or AIHA. There's a few of those, and they all have their own criteria. I think those are great platforms to, to build upon. Right. The problem and the challenge with chronic illness and understanding how to look at exposure through the eyes of an IEP is that there's no formal training that I'm aware of. Uh, on one hand, we would definitely recommend that those listening, those that are interested, they can go to survivingmold.com. There's a wealth of information on there. Mm -hmm. But there's other organizations like the International Society of Environmentally Acquired Illness. I know that's a mouthful. It's ISEAI.org, where it's another platform, another body of information that everybody, really, clinicians, patients, IEPs can go. And in fact, with ICI, you, if you're an IEP, you can actually become a member and learn more. You'll have access to a listserv. You'll have access to a huge database where a lot of this information is coming down to. But admittedly, from a formal standpoint, this idea of, you know, do you have a certification or a degree, a plaque on the wall? You certainly have degrees that are more industrial related, worker exposure, that sort of thing. Right. So what we've done is Recently, I've been working with a colleague of mine, Larry Schwartz, and a, a particular university here in Arizona at looking at a, an education curriculum that we can put together for IEPs and not really sure, you know, we're really in the infancy of the stages, so there's not much to report right now. But what I can tell you is whether it's a certification program or whether it's a track or an actual degree, we're trying to put this education into a curriculum format so that we can have something that's repeatable and something that is going to be helpful for IEPs that will help the masses. So that's kind of more of a stay tuned type of thing, but I'm hoping by the end of next year, we'll be able to report that we're having something official that is going through an actual university that is specific to IEPs working with people who have chronic illness. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I tell you, there's going to be a lot of IEPs signing up for that course, I guarantee you. So that's fantastic. Thank right. you for your work on that, by the way. Uh, yeah. Well, this is the part of the show where we like to get to know you a little more. Uh, Mike, what do you enjoy doing outside of work in, in your spare time? So I have uh, two boys, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And I tell you, it's been this whole father thing has been a learning curve, probably the most challenging in my life. And <laughs> I'd say that right now outside of work, really what I've been doing is just really spending more and more time with my boys. I got a four-year-old who loves to go swimming, so we'll try to spend time every night when we can together in the pool. I grew up camping, being in the outdoors, that sort of thing. So when I have time, I really love to hang out with family and friends. Now, that's something I haven't done recently because we, we have a new family. But when I'm not staring at a, a publication or reading a book that relates to what I do for a living, it's really just spending time with family. I get so much energy with my family and friends that it kind of recharges me. This work we do is so rewarding. I'm so passionate, but it's also so exhausting. And um, right. that, that would probably be my first go-to outside of work. That's fantastic. Well, Mike, we've really enjoyed having you on the Secret Life of Mold podcast and helping us all really understand the topic of CIRS. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us before you go? Yeah, sure. This whole topic about chronic illness, CIRS, as you obviously pointed out, is complicated. It's complex. A lot of the people listening are in that boat where they're lost. And if they're not lost, they find that any topic that they read uh, feels like it's reading a book. We've been there. We've done that. And Mold Inspection Sciences, your guys' podcast that you do, is a great resource. Um, I'd also encourage people, if they want to check out IEP Radio, that's a podcast, a video cast that I offer. It's free. 
It's meant to be educational only. And we try and cover a lot of these topics that we've talked about even today, whether it's remediation, whether it's more about chronic illness, uh, different types of sampling, that sort of thing. I encourage people to uh, look at these resources because this is information that is coming from people that are leading the way in their industry and it's free of charge and it's free information. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars to find this stuff out. So I appreciate you guys and having the opportunity to come on here today and share that information with you. You bet, Mike. We've really enjoyed having you. You've provided a wealth of information and, and uh, really helped kind of identify and, and help our consumers understand the CIRS and all that's involved in that. So we definitely appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today for this episode of the Secret Life of Mold podcast. If you need help with mold issues in your home or office, we'd love to help. For our Texas location, please call 888-335-MOLD. That's 888-335-6653. Or email contact at moldtx.com. For our locations other than Texas, reach out to our customer care team at 800-619-MOLD. That's 800-619-6653. Or email us at contact at moldsci.com.